the communism trope show up in all the movies, which yes. were not produced by white evangelicals. Although I think all the members of the Wolverines from Red Dawn actually were a member of a local um, Reformed Baptist <laughs> congregation up in the Northwest, but at least I hope they were. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and you found week two of our Stand Firm book club on Kristen Kobus Dumay and her Jesus and John Wayne. Last week on episode 42, Anne, J.D., and Rolinda discussed the meaning of evangelicalism, both as suggested by Dumay and how it's been understood historically, and also whether or not Dumay's fundamental thesis stands up to any kind of scrutiny at all. So go back and check out that episode if you haven't heard it yet. So here for part two are Anne Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and Rolinda Greger of Grace Anglican in Louisville. Take it away for week two. Okay, so I thought this week was really interesting because um, as the older person of this trio, uh, I lived through a lot of this. Um, so it's always interesting to see someone's historical outlook on something you experience. And you know, DeMay criticizes and blames white evangelicals for their war against communism. Um, she says that Christian leaders characterize communism as a moral crisis, and they attempted to influence political leaders to fight communism. Um, so what do you all think? Does she have a valid complaint or not? I mean, Sorry. I, yeah, I'm flabbergasted. I thought the comp, so I didn't live through this era. I wasn't even in the States for the 80s much. I thought the communism was a bad thing. And uh, the whole world, like the whole Western world was really sad about <clears throat> how it was spreading and didn't want it because they saw what was happening. And so, again, as we said last week, not just evangelicals, but literally lots and lots of kinds of people were really stressed. And it, it <laughs> stressed. Did... <laughs> yeah. Talk to the Polish people about being stressed about communism, for goodness sake. Yeah. Sakes. I mean, the, the, entire, the, the entire world, the entire Christian world, insofar as they actually were genuine Christians, were concerned and should be concerned about the rise and spread of communism, a, a decidedly and avowedly godless system of oppression and mind control. And no, no less of a world Christian leader than Pope John Paul II is rightly considered to be among, with Reagan, the few people who single-handedly brought down the communist regime. And there's a documentary that is hard to find, but it's called Nine Days That Changed the World. And it was about how when John Paul II went to uh, Poland, back where he was from, and did a nine day, as it were, sort of like a Billy Graham crusade, shock horror, but went around and had masses and all these open spaces that the Communist Party realized that they could not stop him from, uh, from doing all these church services because he had such an incredible uh, popular uprising that it would essentially have, have meant that they would have uh, gone to war with the entire nation again. And so you have this incredible documentary that shows the communist leaders sort of nervously pacing back and forth in their you know, smoked uh, uh, lens glasses with their, uh, you know, uh, shoulder pad suits, smoking cigarettes, walking back and forth, watching the Pope uh, sort of suspiciously. Um, and what he did was he started appealing to what was then in the solidarity of the Polish people over against the communists and sort of re-inspired them for their religious convictions to ultimately be part of the solution for overthrowing the communist government, which then had ramifications in Leipzig and the student revolt, which then ultimately led to the Berlin Wall falling down. And the idea, the unbelievably, I mean, simplistic and naive idea that, that, that it was one, only even white evangelicals that were against communism is ridiculous. Two, that, that then by extension, or, or in addition to that, they shouldn't, whether they were white or not, evangelical or not as Christians be against communism is the implication. Well, that's false. And then on top of all that, it's actually a good thing that communism fell, by the way. And if you go to somewhere like Bratislava or, um, 
or parts of Poland or even parts of, uh, I mean, certain people in East Germany that we met when living in Berlin were had what's called Ostalagie. There has nostalgia for the communist regime, but many people did not. And it wasn't hard to, to find people who would have been very grateful for whatever color, whatever denomination, whatever type person who stood against communism, they, they stood in their debt. And that's the idea that somehow that was a, uh, it, it's the height of cynicism the height of cynicism to consider, to, to look at the marshalling of the Christian forces against communism as some sort of power play for the patriarchal white supremacists who otherwise were known as Southern Baptists. It's just, it's, it's, almost, it's almost hard to believe that that was said with a straight face. The noted, noted evangelicals, Ronald Reagan, John Paul II, and Margaret Thatcher, Noted white patriarchal evangelicals bring down <laughs> communism. That's right. That's but right. You know, so, Margaret Thatcher has been, yes, yeah, she was she was clearly a, um, you know. a, a reformed Baptist, I think. She never even <laughs> uh, went to the uh, Church of England, probably never even set foot in one of those godless heathen places, only only hung out with the with the Baptists. <laughs> but you know, yeah. communism is is so anti-religion across the board, and we can see that now in China. You know, repression and murder of uh, Muslim minorities. You know, who's for the gulag? Who who thinks the Canadian boat people should be sent back? And you know, you look at the Khmer Rouge. You look at North Korea you know, just what China does to their own citizens. And I, I find it shocking that the, the war against communism are, you know, is even something we would debate or think um, is a bad thing. Now, well, maybe her premise is that we should have used other foreign policy instruments besides war but it, it never gets into that. And the bottom line, those foreign policy instruments were executed by governments, not churches. Right. Well, that's a really good point, Melinda. I mean, that, that people forget that, you know, that the, the by and large, uh, the Christian West has actually, certainly since the time of the Reformation, well, I shouldn't say that, not since, at least in America, um, the, the auspices for war have never been explicitly religious. You know, I mean, this is a, was a great victory. And the people that wrote the Constitution and came out of the wars of religion, um, you know, that were, that were rampant in the 16th and early 17th century were very, very frightened of this. And so that's a really good point to, to mention. But beyond that, I think that du, Dumais, um, her, her assertion is that there was, again, a cynical power grab behind the binary, you know, uh, either or of good and evil that was able to manipulate and marshal otherwise unsuspecting uh, rubes who were Christians into this, into this, ultimately this political fight that they, um, that there was a rise of the, of the moral majority and the Christian right that was tied to a uh, black and white good and evil that was, um, I don't know if it was too simplistic or it certainly was seemed in her mind to be opportunistic and for, for the people involved. And you could even see this as in, in, in early in, in our lifetime of um, uh, when George Bush called uh, the war against terror an actual evil. You know, when he talked about the 9-11 being something evil, you had people even then, I mean, I was right out of college, but I certainly had professor friends of mine and other um, uh, just people at my age who questioned his use of language because how dare you, you know, world leader have the audacity to call something evil because of course, if something's evil, then good people should be against it. Well, there's some of the other people who have disagreement about that. And of course, that that is a fruit of the uh, postmodern um, decline in any confidence in absolute truth or, or even um, discussion about the legitimacy of absolute truth that we find ourselves in, and which we are now currently in the full blossom of. When, one thing I think it's really weird I find like I guess I was a child in the 80s I've been going back and watching music videos from the 80s yeah to ir irritate my children um 
because it's horrifying some of like the look really... away by chicago have you seen that one in a while no it's one no of my favorite ones i have to go look at that uh but so one thing throughout the book that she tries to do is to peel off evangelicals from the culture in which they found their voice as it were you know again over and over i keep thinking well americans by and large were afraid of communism and um and americans love their fads and americans love to buy weird posters of people you know music people and like movies so all of the matt has been educating me in 80s movies too as well besides the music and a lot of the the communism trope you know we're against these bad guys show up in all the movies which were not produced by white evangelicals were not produced by the sbc or the moral majority although i think all the members of the wolverines from red dawn actually were a member of a local um reformed baptist (laughs) congregation up in the northwest but at least i hope they were but at any rate we can pray backwards (laughs) in time Ruskies, Rocky <laughs> Four, just keep going. Top yeah, going. I mean, there, um, yes, I do think that there was there was a brand of masculinity and anti-communism through American culture that resonated very, very deeply inside the American soul. And evangelicals did buy into a certain um, a certain cultural brand because that's where there they were that's who they were um and it's 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 mean to actually try to separate them out from that and say that they were the ones that produced that sure i do think that evangelicals did act in fear often not necessarily from communism which everyone was afraid of but from the the promiscuous materialist uh porno pornographic godless secularist uh, pressures that were that really came into bloom in the 80s right they they that really began to take off and as the, earlier the, than that you just were too little i was too little but okay but i mean like um as the economy recovered in the 80s from the depression and sadness of the 70s you know there was a rejoicing <laughs> and uh that the sort of a freedom we can we can win this we're we're good and even if we're sexually promiscuous we're still good because we're against the communists that's not that didn't come from evangelicalism that was just in the air sure and i mean in, in most of the uh would you know with apologies to my evangelical mu- uh, movie directing friends in the 80s most of the high culture that they tried to produce was a complete failure um so you know if you go back and watch the movies and the and even the music which i happen to love petra and carmen and uh various things you know it wasn't like there was a huge uh culture defining um, white evangelical uh, sort of monolith that was somehow sweeping across the nation. I mean, we were trying, we were, we were being caught up, you know, or, and that's the argument I think she's, she's implying is that whether or not the <clears throat> actual argument against communism was warranted, you know, I mean, granted there were high and low brow ways to deal with it. And there was heavy and light handed attempts to um, address the problem. But fundamentally, the question would be, what were we supposed to do? Should we have marshaled our country and its defenses, however um, understood, against an, an observable and agreed upon enemy? Um, or should we have, what, done something altogether different? I mean, perhaps embraced them or capitulated or, or had some middle ground. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a different question than what's being proffered. But the fundamental argument she's making here is that communism and the fear of communism was a, was a way for um, power-hungry um, sort of opportunists within the white evangelical movement to marshal support for ultimately their patriarchal and um, racist cause. And that's just, that's just a really, that's a real stretch. That's a real stretch. Well, and it, it goes back to Eisenhower and she talks about how Eisenhower, you know, really emphasized uh, communism and you know, people were upset with uh, Truman and there were some problems within his administration. Well, she blames white evangelicals in the South 
for turning those Southern states from blue to red and says, well, it was just racism on the part of the white evangelicals. But the interesting thing is, you know, Eisenhower just, he won by a landslide. And even on his reelection, he gained African-American support. It wasn't just white evangelicals. I, I think it, it's almost as if she is the Christian left bemoaning the fact that the South turned red, but it didn't totally turn red. It was only at the presidential level and the local races back then it was still, you know, blue states. But the bottom line there with, with Eisenhower is that everybody voted for him. And, you know, again, with Nixon, it was the war against communism and uh, he had broad support. Well, and maybe he even had some trust of the people, given the fact that he had been the supreme allied uh, commander in Europe over the invasion of Normandy and D-Day and was had seen firsthand the horrors and the terror of totalitarian regimes and had personally had to lead men uh, by the thousands to their own deaths in, in defense of an idea that, however imperfect, was still uh, being propagated in America. And again, there's there's an alternative to that idea, but but the the uh, that but that it was that it was embraced by Eisenhower and then the people that supported him um, is not a cynical uh, power grab by white people. It was actually a, there may have been some of that, but it was actually a perpetuation of an idea of an American ideal, as it were, which Austin Guinness calls the American experiment that has yet to be fully realized and may not ever be, but that there are competing visions of the history, the reality and the promise of America is something um, that people have been talking about a lot. And this book wants to subsume all of that conversation under the simplistic, cynical and dismissive heading of white evangelical patriarchal power. And that's the problem with it because, right. you know, there's a lot of arguments. I mean, you know, the Cold War was complicated and, you know, there was a lot of, I mean, governments and political powers have are, are uh, multifaceted and have a lot of, um, uh, you know, good and bad actors. And this is nothing new. I mean, this is nothing new under the sun. And so, again, there's an interesting discussion. We can even see it insofar down to the current 1619 versus the 1760, uh, 1760 controversy. You know, I mean, there are that, that history, as Orwell certainly saw um, in the hands of the powerful of the present, um, can be manipulated to to affect the future, you know. And so they, they, this is what's happening right now is that people are fighting about the the, the good and the bad and the ugly of our past in order to to uh, educate the present in in hopes for changing the future and that's what's that was what's happening then you know that's what's happening now and again i don't have a problem with that discussion necessarily i think it's a vibrant and and uh, legitimate debate what i do have a problem with is this entire conceit of this book that somehow um the the motivations behind many of the people in this book you know billy graham reagan eisenhower even perhaps john wayne i, mean, I don't know him as well but um that there are all that they were not mixed bags, that somehow they were sort of universal in their um, their quest, their, their fear of losing white supremacy and patriarchal power, and they're united in their opposition against anyone that would question uh, the status quo in any way. And I just... I just think that, again, that makes for a good um, and quick tabloid headline and airport book, but it's not worthy of the amount of legitimate interaction that this has gotten among people who should know better. I know I'm really sad that I've like I, I listened to the book and I'm reading it again. Like, I'm I can't believe too. I'm spending this much time. I wonder what your thoughts on that point, Anne, are, is that I have seen very little academic engagement from the very people that are supposedly the um, villains in this book. And I don't know if it's forthcoming or if it's uh, because what I basically see this book being is a lot of soundbite tweets that is to the pandering syncophantic crowd and sort of a lot of high fiving and backslapping amongst people who um, had she written a book that would have questioned any of these assumptions, the book would have been um, rejected out of 
hand because it didn't fit a certain narrative. And so that's just, it's just been an interesting observation, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or kind of the various people that have quote unquote, or have loved and liked this book. Um, I've found very few actual engagement with it from the very people or at least representing, I mean, we sort of obliquely represent the group. I mean, we're Anglicans, so that's kind of a broadly speaking evangelical and we are white. But, um, you know, certainly not knee deep in it the way that, um, at least anymore, the way that the, some of the people named are. And I just found that to be an interesting aside that had almost no, almost no uh, critical engagement other than people sort of um, self-congratulatorily uh, tweeting aspects of it and saying, uh, see, I told you so sort of things, which anyway, just an observation. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I, I haven't really seen critical, all of the criticism I've seen has been really carefully couched. Um, Neil Shenby's piece came out this week and he was obviously, it was good, but he was trying to be very, very fair. And I'm struggling. I, I don't feel like being very, very fair because the book's not very, very fair. You know, he's, she, she made no attempt at all um, to understand what communism is like, and you don't even have to do a lot of research on that point. You can really just read Rod Dreher's book, which just came out, and he'll get you up to speed about what communism represents. You don't have to delve in deep. You know, listen to a uh, listen to the book on Audible or uh, listen to a Roger Scruton thing on YouTube, and it's not it's not that complicated. It's like reading her account of how white evangelicals rejected communism or fought against communism is like watching one of those videos where a late night TV host goes up and down the sidewalk and looks for people who know who what the Holocaust was. A lot of people don't know what the Holocaust was. So of course, most people don't know what communism is, but she's supposedly an academic. Her answer to that should be deeper than some guy on the street interview. I agree. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a set of, we talked about this last week, there's a set of presuppositions, you know, in the form of a hammer that went searching for a nail and she found it. She found it in every single possible, um, you know, facet of the history. And it's, um, you know, if you agreed with those presuppositions, then it makes for a great and triumphal read against those people, which, you know, that's just... Which is that's kind a of, way. Yeah, that's a way. It's kind of ironic, though, because, you know, again, under Nazism and communism, uh, you went out and found a people that needed to not exist anymore. Right. You know, who's who's being rounded up and killed in China or put in camps? You know, there is a people in China that is the, not just a people. Many different kinds of people are unacceptable to the Chinese communist enterprise. Well, that's essentially what she's trying to do here is make an entire group of a, of people unacceptable and, and not allowable in the in the discourse where white evangelicals, racist white patriarchal evangelicals must not speak anymore because they have been so discredited by her, um, but not in reality. So, you know, I, I find it one of those, you know, I really want to do write that book like um, Annals of Irony in the Christian world. This is one of the big ones. Like, you know, thanks, Kristen Dumay, like you are literally doing <laughs> what um, people 40 years ago were anxious about other people doing. Yeah. Maybe we should do the second question because I'm starting to get mad now. <laughs> One thing before we go on. One of the things she claimed, and I didn't go look for it. I've been checking a lot of her sources to make sure they're legit because they're surprising. But she said that Billy Graham sent a letter to Nixon in 69 suggesting some policy scenarios in Vietnam that were against just war theory and the Geneva Convention. She said that, you know, evangelicals supported continued um, uh, escalating the bombing in Vietnam and bombing in Cambodia, Graham and Colson. Um, and I guess there's statistics that show that as well. And that is a, a cautionary tale if you, if you don't, uh, fully understand politics as a, a Christian leader, you probably shouldn't delve into it. 
and warfare coming out of as a military officer coming out of the Vietnam War era, you know, my whole service was like Cold War and beyond. And so there was a lot going on in the military to kind of recover from Vietnam, to be really clear about our aims and, you know, fight the war, win the war, and perhaps not be, you know, if you're captive to civilian leadership telling you how to do things and micromanaging your targets for the day, that's that's not a recipe for, for success. No, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, there's a lot of, again, assumptions underneath this. First of all, you know, the problem, I mean, the, the problem with the Vietnam War, you know, he says, understatement of the year, you know, yeah. the fact it was never fully even uh, licensed as such or, or, or prosecuted as such, you know, which then left it in the hands of the bureaucrats, of course, is, is one of its major failings, in my opinion. But so the idea that a non-war could live up to a just war theory, you know, is, is really quite an interesting stretch. But beyond that, again, there's this incredible cynical view of politics, the government, and human nature—that's um, that's based upon this idea that that everyone is simply self-interested in in sort of a political sense. Because, you know, the idea that a Christian leader would have an idea about something other than the church is not a foreign. That's not a shock. The question would just be: To what extent do the leaders that we have measure that um, insight over against? against other insights. And the implication here is that because Billy Graham wielded the the voting block of the white evangelicals, that somehow his his ideas about Vietnam would somehow sway um, the, the politicians to whom he spoke. And, you know, to the extent that that may or may not be true as part of the political process, but the idea that it's somehow, again, a, a self uh, sort of an, an obvious um, you know, exhibit double A of the um, sort of the, the power hungry white evangelical monolith voting block is just, it's just, again, it's too cynical for words because the, you know, people have all sorts of, it's like I used to say, you you can tell me all your advice you want, I don't have to take it, you know, sort right. of thing. And so the mm-hmm. idea that the idea, the very idea that Billy Graham would communicate with a president, I mean, um, that one imagines that there were a lot of other leaders on perhaps the other side of the Vietnam uh, conflict, other than Billy Graham, who had no problem at all and for whom she would have no problem at all having the ear of the president. It just happened to be that Billy Graham had this ear. And so the idea, you know, I see it time and time again, is that the only the only political action that's warranted is that which is in agreement with a certain political viewpoints. And so that's that's fine as long as we can acknowledge that. But the idea that Christian ministers have no voice to the politicians, period, is is wrong. Now, your, right. to your point, I totally agree. The extent to which the, you know, our military leaders should be taking uh, military combat strategy from like me uh, is questionable, you know, a very small degree. Um, nevertheless, you have no problem with people on the quote unquote left speaking quote unquote truth to power at every single level and are more than happy when those people in power um, accede to their wishes or bend to their wills. And yet all of a sudden, when it's in the question of Billy Graham and this supposed patriarchal white supremacist misogynistic horde of, of demons, um, then it's, um, it's, it's, it's seen again as, as, as case in point for its, its nefarious uh, and evil uh, nature. And I think it's just, it's so clearly refuted with counterexamples and then deepened with just one or two questions of clarification that, it, that it's, it's again, just, just difficult to, to take seriously. Like, did like did sojour does sojourners get politically involved? You know, do um, the people who are we're, we're not communist sympathizers in America politically involved? For sure, through, for sure. You know, weren't wasn't everyone really sort of in the political game as yeah, they and are they, now? And they congregated, and they protested, and they had right to assembly, and they had you know. Um, boycotts, and they did what American freedom allows you to do, is that 
that short of taking up arms, you basically can get as angry as you possibly can in public. And um, that's actually has been a, a, a strength of our democracy, not a weakness of it. And so the idea that people would have a disagreement with you about the way forward for the country and marshal and mobilize and uh, assemble as, as is our right as of today under the constitution, well, you don't like them, that's fine, but let's not try to, well, what she's trying to do is invalidate the entire reason behind it, not simply disagree. And that's pretty much a, a, a broad brush of how the conversation is taking place in the broader culture is that we're not, we're no longer gonna rely on actual substantive, uh, we're not gonna assume that you are a person of good faith who might actually disagree with me. We're just gonna try to invalidate your entire person. So therefore, whatever you then say is by default, uh, wrong because you know if you're a if white evangelical Christian is essentially synonymous with uh, you know the Nazi or racist or whatever the worst things you could be well it doesn't matter how well you can play the p piano son we don't want to hear it you know and that's a little bit what's happening uh, that's what's being attempted in this case and that's why that's why nobody has any problem with the the fact that many of these arguments are connected in very very uh, questionable ways and they're broad brush and they're under yeah. uh, developed but no one really has a problem with that because the thesis is so clear and obvious and and useful for furthering the devaluation of the conversation that that this book I'm surprised it's not going to win a, a Pulitzer's or, or I mean a um, Nobel Prize for Literature or something given the um, given how how useful it will be to move the dial uh, in the right direction, according to certain people. And she also uses this, she charges um, like John Wayne and Ronald Reagan with hyper-masculinity and militarism. And then she expands that to their evangelical fan club. Um, what do y'all think about that? I mean, I, I still don't, I feel I feel very foolish. I don't get where John Wayne fits in because I well I have still only seen one John Wayne movie a long time ago and he's never been a person that I as a a wicked white evangelical I never looked to him for a spiritual guidance. <laughs> So, and I have never been around anyone who ever held up John Wayne to me as an icon of masculinity or what a, a Christian or a person should be like. So I'm, I, I read the whole book and I didn't I get it. What's interesting is that I, I'm kind of thinking she got her premise from a opinion piece in 2016 in the Baptist News Global, a guy right. named Al Alan Beam. And it, and it was actually like she stole his whole premise for the book. Uh, yeah, it seemed like if you were going to accuse someone of plagiarism, I read the piece, it, it, it was really like lifting somebody else's work and putting it into your book, but I wouldn't want to say that officially. Yeah. And well, and, and then she finishes that one chapter with his quote where um, basically John Wayne is going to save your ass, which really surprised me. That's why I went and looked for the, the actual um, article. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, John Wayne was he was an actor. Now, I know he did some directing, but he didn't call the shots. That was the Hollywood um cultural elites and it and they were producing movies that in some ways you know were rah-rah patriotism and the military um, but they were emblematic of their time uh, I looked up kind of it was funny I looked in Encyclopedia Britannica which apparently is kind of a, a valid source and is not not biased and they said that you know his those john ford movies that john wayne was in they offer a somewhat complex representation of the american character in that they exhibit unflagging patriotism but are disillusioned by and resigned to 
the inherent hypocrisies within America. Basically, they're saying that, you know, his movies weren't all rah-rah America. He was a flawed character. He was a sinner and a saint in in these movies, just like that song. <laughs> it really wasn't John Wayne. It was the cultural elites. No, I was gonna say that's so that's so interesting because you know, she accuses white patriarchal evangelicals, racist evangelicals of being afraid of everything. Um, one thing like it, it mean the Emmy, what is it? The, is it the Emmys? The music thing was last this week or Grammys. last week Grammys. and Grammys, Grammys. And the, you know, that song, that very, very popular song was basically enacted on stage of two women. I don't even want to say the name of the right. song. It was so, so sickeningly offensive really to me as a Christian. Uh, and, Hollywood, the the cult, the cultural onslaught of Hollywood elites lecturing America for the last twenty years, and I assume before that, uh, it's really funny that she would take somebody who was a part of that world and then use it as a bludgeon against the people who have decried that culture for a long time. Yeah, well, that's 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 uh, a really good point, Anne, and I think it's it's part and parcel of this kind of use this this often used word that she uses, um, hyper masculine. I wonder what she really means by that, because if you know if I were training a soldier, I don't know, to get into a boat and storm a beach full of ger ger uh, German. Um, gun turrets. I don't know what hyper-masculine is, but I would like some of that probably um, in order to, to get that person off the boat and up the hill. And, you know, many of John Wayne's movies, it's not that they were propaganda pieces, but they were, they were evocative of a, perhaps a different time. You know, that's again, another conversation. Maybe we will never have to have military uh, force that looks like that again, but certainly for a generation, it was an understood uh, rite of passage for people like my grandfather, you know, that had gone through something that was a coming of age, you know, and then you could get even further, or not a field, but further deeper into this and say, what, what sort of um, transition or what sort of reality to a masculine um, sort of, uh, you know, bestowing of masculinity would you like to see in a culture? You know, this is one idea of it. You know, you became a warrior, you became a, um, you know, you joined the army, you, you got a, a a job, you move it out of your house, you know, perhaps that's no longer the case, but what is it, you know? And I think, again, it goes back to the whole conversation we've been having about this book is that there's a implicit uh, or even often explicit sort of argument that every single thing that the quote unquote white evangelical supported was wrong, you know, every single thing. And so that that's an argument, you know, that's, that's fairly uh, broad brush, but I'll give you that argument. Well, tell me what the alternative was. You know, she, she decries the nuclear family or this insistence on the, you know, the, in this throwaway line, which I highlighted, which I, I couldn't believe was, had no, um, had no footnotes to it, uh, was this about the, um, the, the nuclear family was a relatively modern invention, the, the man the being the breadwinner for the family that only uh, began in 1920 and then peaked around the 50s and then was in decline in the 60s. I mean, there's a way to understand that that is so narrowly focused and sort of jargon laden academic speak that I understand what she could be saying. There needed to be like four or five footnotes to that statement if you're, ta if you're taking the most narrow definition of nuclear. But the idea that what we're really arguing for is that there was a, a nuclear uh, sort of a patriarchal, for lack of a better word, a father in the home who was married to a mother who was taking care of children. You know, this idea of father knows best is just seen and dismissed out of hand as something bad, something wrong. And that's, that's, that's hard to stomach. It's hard to swallow because as you pointed out with the Grammys, the alternative is quite stark um, to the quote unquote nuclear family, to the, to the quote unquote hyper-masculine, the, the alternative to that in a, a world which can't even define what a man is even biologically is quite a stark choice. And so again, we go time just each decade it's not that we have to, to absolve any of the wrongdoing and the excesses and could even have a conversation about some of them, but there's no admission, there's no even even hint that the alternative or that the enemy that the, to, against whom they were fighting was somehow a legitimate concern. 
you know, I mean, again, we've talked about it before, like hyper-masculine, um, the real hyper-masculinity is developing as a result of, of uh, you know, the rise in pornography and free sex. Uh, because once you actually detached uh, the real masculine need for responsibility and taking um, sort of ownership of your actions, i.e. raising children, marrying uh, the woman with whom you have just had, you know, uh, produced a child, um, getting a job, all of these things are no longer necessary to what it means to be a man. Well, then what the modern world offers, quote unquote, hyper-masculine men is just uh, limitless sexual conquest and video game prowess, you know, so you've got so Twitch TV is a thing. I mean, the idea that somehow you could be revered for playing a video game um, to people who received Eisenhower's Bible on the way to D-Day would be laughable. And yet that's the world we live in. And so this quote unquote hyper-masculinity that she's decrying, well, there may be some uh, some problems with it. And I think any of us who were raised by, uh, you know, there are many people who were raised by by egregious examples of, of hyper-masculinity that, that we could talk about. But again, the idea that she and just without even qualification puts forth everything that Reagan and his supporters are for is wrong um, and white and nationalistic and evangelical is not a, it's not a good, it's not a good argument, but it's also not, it's neither fair nor, um, nor in good faith. And, and it's just, I don't want to talk about this book anymore. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to read <laughs> just, it again. I'm you know just, what, one of the, like the, the question of hype. Okay. My grandfather got into one of those horrible little planes and flew, uh, he was in the Pacific and um, was in a, a little tiny bomber or whatever they were, fighter. He was flying off of aircraft carriers and he ended up being a, an ace. Like he, fought, he shot down nine Japanese airplanes and he did it drinking Coca-Cola. He was a new new christian he got saved uh before he got on one of these ships you know that and um as a sign of his christian faith instead of putting beer in that little slot thing which is what everybody did and um they he, he got coca-cola and put it in there and i think that's probably one reason why he did so well as he flew off the aircraft carrier he was drinking something that I think they still had cocaine and Coca-Cola back then. Well, that probably really helped him. Okay. So, but then after that, he went to, uh, he and my grandma went onto the mission fields and they were missionaries in Africa and then in Belgium for their whole lives. And yeah, sure. We have some family trauma baggage because he endured a lot in that experience as a very young man. And he, um, he was a great father, but he probably could have been a better father, you know, than he was. And he was very, he was very masculine, I guess. But, you know, I don't know, back in the day, you didn't really think of it that way. You were sort of all on the same team. So he and my grandma pulled their lives together and went and tried to tell people about Jesus in Africa, which again is another thing that, you know, I'm sure that Christian Kobe, uh, Kobe Sume would not approve of what they chose to do with their lives and the heritage that they gave to Christianity in Africa. Uh, and my mom's parents did the same thing and her grandparents, their quote, hyper-masculine white evangelical Christianity meant that they went to uh, and spent their whole lives on another continent telling other people about Jesus. And then those people grew up in the faith and then came back to, came to America and rescued us from our wretched heresy. And they continue to preach to us. So um, I, I'm a, as usual, I'm offended by her reductive and flat view of how men and women order their lives and what they thought the call of Jesus was. So, you know, she thinks that the gospel is all about peace. Yeah, it, it is. And a lot of people who went to war against Nazism came home and, and invested in the church, became missionaries, became pastors, um, settled down, didn't want their children to endure what they had to, and 
then you ended up with a boomer generation. So that's another conversation. Oh, Anne. Yeah. Oh. I don't want to bring that up. No, this is just the time when we were going to tell you, but we've actually invited some people for an intervention for you because you have such a rose-colored view of the past. And it's just so hopelessly naive and and simplistic. And don't you realize that you should hate your grandfather for his his, um, misogyny and um, and by extension, his (laughs) colonial white supremacy in Africa. And I'm sorry to tell you that your entire... um, life has been a lie up until now so it's not too late though because you can always take online classes at calvin calvin college oh yeah i can and you can um no i learned this though in the 90s at cornell i learned all about orientalism and colonial i mean i had to read edward said well i I think we were like at the height of it i mean i remember taking i was an english major for a hot minute um and we did a we had a ta come and teach us about american history and she was um i mean rightly concerned with sort of uh, correcting the the record of um, there weren't that many women who were represented in sort of the canon of American literature. So she wanted, that was her PhD that was freshly minted. And so I'm all for that, but we literally spent one day on Faulkner and Hemingway and Steinbeck, one day in an American history survey. And then I know everything that Kate Chopin has ever written. And <laughs> oh, I know no. every, and Zora oh, Neale no. Hurston. And I have sort of wake, walking nightmares of, uh, you know, I know why the cage bird sings now, because I know, I know, I know why the cage bird sings, I promise you, but it's like, but I think this is again, the, this is where we're coming down to fundamentally, which is why books like this are clarifying, not so much in what they say, but in sort of the the alternative reality that they are written from, because there are there's a charitable and an uncharitable way to read um, just about anything, particularly um, acts of the past. And well, even to the, to your point before, you know, the the lib, the sort of war perpetrated against the Japanese in the Pacific by the uh, colonial white supremacists. And I mean, that's one way of saying exactly what you just said, you know, the, yeah. the audacity of the the western white colonialists to come to the um to the african continent and force their patriarchal submissive religion against uh, against people's wills um by threat of sword and economic promises uh not met by the way because all the people who did that were lying filthy misogynists and so again that's that's a way of viewing history <laughs> and um i'm a i think that there's a there's a conversation to be had about that but this is not this book was not uh part of actually wanting that conversation to take place. It was actually just a, actually, interestingly enough, a propagandist piece for um, the syncophants who already agreed with the worldview and was a um, thinly uh, researched, or at least a not deeply in-depth screed against a people group that had already been decided were the enemies. And this is what, um, you know, this is where we are. So, I mean, I think Again, we could we should talk about the this another question about the question about how the sexual revolution plays into all of this, because as we mentioned last week, uh, a lot of what we see in this book, both from within the church and without, I would say, was a response to a legitimately uh, world-altering change of sociological um, magnet or world-altering magnitude of sociological change in the um, combination of the pill you know, birth control and lack uh, uh, ease of divorce and the rise of the, uh, the coordinate rise of sexual promiscuity and its, its sort of relative ease that the world had never known, you know, had never, ever known this before. And so um, a lot of these people were coming of age in a world that was essentially foreign to any previous generation in whatever culture they'd ever lived um, with respect to ease of sexual uh, Congress, um, lack of social social stigma, and then furthermore, where we find ourselves now, lack of even cultural expectation for either denying yourself in these areas or even taking up what is now considered to be antiquated and quote unquote traditional values like monogamous marriage and raising your own children and things like this. And so I think that the lack of the lack of appreciation for the complexity of this cultural moment, this sort of um, that, that we're in is really evidence on almost every page. Cause like you said, rightly, and the flatness of these characters is just laughable. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And as if you couldn't write an easy, uh, uh, an easily dismissible screed about the, the opposite viewpoints as flatly, you know, and this is what's, this is again, goes back to my, 
uh, fundamental critique about this is that people who are lauding this book should know better. They should know better and it should not be given the time that it has been given, except for the fact that it is furthering a narrative that is very um, convenient uh, for this current moment in terms of the power, uh, quote unquote, power dynamics that are shifting. But, you know, because fundamentally, when she asserts patriarchalism, uh, which, you know, is another word of saying the father, you know, father rule, which is, again, we pointed out last week, another way of describing the message of the Bible about God, our father, um, ruling the world from on high, that there's a that there's an implication that any any Christianity that has any vestige of a biblical worldview in this perspective, um, however, um, qualified is considered to be a cynical power grab by men over against women. And as we pointed out last week, that's just a world that I have not lived in. Um, I don't live in now and I hope to never inhabit one that sees the world through that lens. And that's the lens through which this entire book is written. And the people that find it, this edifying are happy to have that just confirmed rather than challenged. And that's what we see here throughout this book on every page. She she talks about women's liberation and the sexual revolution and, and how white evangelicals as a result of that began, you know, their battle for family values and they formed, you had the moral majority, the religious right. And she saw that as a power play and talked about some of the different players in that. What did you think about those different players? It was, to me, it was very interesting, you know, Maribel Morgan, which was kind of humorous. She uh, wrote that total woman book and advocated uh, putting on costumes to meet your husband at the door um, and to prop up his ego. But what's interesting is the LaHaye's actually had a marriage book that had a lot to say about sex within marriage. So that was, um, I think, a healthy pushback against the culture. It's not saying we're anti-sex, but this is where sex is expressed. Well, and this is where they're damned if they do and they don't. It's like, well, you people are prudish and you never talk about sex so no one knows how to do it. Well, when you write a book that's too explicit about it, and it may not be how we would have written it, then you shouldn't have done that either. And then it's just by and large creepy that anyone's talking about it except for us because that's all we talk about you know on our way to the playboy mansion in light of our celebration of um you know newfound sexual freedoms and it's like you know again this is a conversation that i've been having for 25 years about how christians are supposedly uh, obsessed with se- evangelicals obsessed with sex and and at the same time somehow prudish you know which is just sublimated let's just like everyone's a psychoanalyst now you know this is all sublimated desires and we can we we took a intro to psych class back in college online even in the 90s and now we can diagnose you and all you evangelicals and it's like you know say what you want to say um and but but to a certain degree like we're we're going to have our conversation uh based upon the authorities that we respect and trust and it's not going to go perfectly but and you can diagnose or have your little anthropological kind of observations of us from afar but you're not speaking to us um for us or about us like as far as i'm concerned because you know that that i don't necessarily want to read a book by tim LaHaye about how to have you know like interviews <laughs> sex manual or something it's like i mean but but you know some people did and they they wanted to behind yeah exactly uh i don't know i don't even i don't even really want to talk any further about that but uh but it's but it's like but you know it's it's like okay i mean what is the alternative you want to give them the kama sutra you know you want to have uh you want to you know show them some exploratory films i mean you know it's like in germany i mean parts of germany where we live they have a um, uh sex manuals for preteens you know illustrated that you can you know okay well you can go that's you want to give your children that like i'll go ahead and stick with what beverly and tim lahey given the alternative have to say and um we'll see how this all works out and that's just kind where I fall at the end of all of this is that there is a there's a fundamental there are fundamental assumptions and there are relational um, uh, cornerstones um, that are marks broad 
brushed by evangelicals, who evidently um, John Paul II is also one. And I'll go ahead and stick with working through those, uh, building on that foundation, and however imperfectly, however much needs to be renovated at times, but that has been tried and true. And, and, and to be fair, I honestly think it really withstood a lot of the cultural pressures and social revolution of the past half century that many other people have not. I mean, I think that we're still, I mean, I'm standing here, I'm married, you know, really uh, have, you know, withstood a lot of the pressures to cave into um, what would be quote unquote normal in a society with respect to men and women Women and, and how we're all comported. And um, I'm grateful for the foundation that was fought for um, by, yes, even someone like John Wayne, for goodness sakes, and Oliver North, as terrible and as awful as those evil people are. That was a joke. But, um, and so I think that's just fundamentally, it's like we're going to have to hopefully cordially agree to disagree and perhaps have two, like Machen said, alternative religions here, because the way that they're describing the world is, it's, is as foreign to me when they describe me as it must be for them when they think they're describing, when they think they're describing me. And, and at the end of it, it's like, well, I'm not sure there's, there's going to be a, a way to uh, bridge this gulf. I just hope that it remains as cordial as this book, let's say that. I mean, that would be that would be a sort of a small hope, but but that's the one I'm living in. I, as a person who is often forced to do, well, not forced, but we do a lot of merit premarital counseling, and then we we help people in their marriages, in the church, and uh, the pornography issue has only increased every single year as we've done this since we started ministry 20 years ago. And I would just love for Christian Kovis Dumay to have to sit across from young couples who are both like, that's the amazing thing about this, both caught in pornography now, because it's for men and women and don't know how to get out. You know, they, it's, it is it's so destructive. It's so ruinous for practical merit, practical life for ordinary people who don't really want to be in that kind of space and then don't know how to get out. And of course, God's grace, I mean, if you believe in God, God's grace is really good for that and can help you and the church can help you. But uh, I guess, I guess she would be on the side of ethically sourced porn for women rather than, and men rather than a quote authoritarian patriarchy which believes that women have souls and children have souls and you know should be allowed to be human and should be allowed to live and be free so if that's what she wants i would say i'm with you jd go ahead and have it and i will adjust for a life that is outside of that mainstream you know, darkness, <laughs> I'll be over in my little corner where the light is while you live in Egypt in the dark. Amen. Well, I think that's a really good way to end it, Anne. I mean, I think that the, you know, I don't bear any ill, Ill will, uh, well, maybe maybe a slight bit uh, towards uh, Kobe DeMay, but I've seen interviews with her and I follow her on Twitter now. And I think that she was trying to write about a subject that she knew very little about. And um, don't we all though? Well, sure, sure. And I just, you know, as I said before last week, I would hope that if I were going to make some, some, some of these rather um, shocking ass, uh, assertions, particularly about living people now, that perhaps there would have been a little more restraint um, or at least. Um, research hubris but that being said i don't i know a lot of the people that are living about whom she speaks and you know whether they read this or not i don't see them changing their their message or their attitude or their posture anytime soon and that's in part because it like i said before is founded upon something much greater than a changing societal mores or supposed um calculations of power and oppression and all of these kind of modern cynical ideas about what motivates people because as far as i can tell However imperfectly the motivations, uh, the, the, the reactions were that the, the legitimately Christian motivations that fueled a lot of these people, again, however imperfectly um, they worked it out, are ones that I share. 
I share them. I share a, a desire to see people uh, comport their lives in accordance with scripture and and work out what that looks like in male and female ways and seek to raise their children over against the claims of a pagan godless society and so on and so forth down the list. And so, you know, it's interesting at the end of this, I actually came away with a greater appreciation and gratitude for my uh, white evangelical forebears. I mean, not all of them, but for the, the fact that some of them in the midst of this tumultuous world had the temerity and the courage, strength of courage and conviction to actually stand up against um, some of these forces and try. And they tried and they mobilized and they inspired and encouraged a generation of people who now have passed the baton to us. And so we can learn from some of their mistakes. We can have caution where it's necessary. We can be as humble as we possibly can be. And we can also pray that our children and grandchildren will have something of the Christian faith, which will allow them to forgive us and to absolve us and to then hopefully do similarly, um, learn, uh, take caution and continue to to pass down this this faith, which is not is neither simply white nor evangelical, but is in fact simply Christian. Well, thanks for listening to Stand Firm this week. We're going to be, I think, looking at Jesus and John Wayne for a week or two more. We'll see how much longer our intrepid trio can take it. Um, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Ann Kennedy, J.D. Koch, and Rolinda Greger. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back doing something next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.